Lord, as we open your word today, we, we thank you for the privilege of, of having the scripture. We thank you, Lord, for what you've revealed uh, in your word to us. We pray, Lord, that we would take it seriously as a word from you today. And God, that we would we pay attention, not to me as a preacher, but to what you might be saying through your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, we pray that you'd open our eyes and change our hearts as we look at your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Once a year, I go to the eye doctor, and I don't like going. They blow the air in your eyes, and then they shine those real bright lights. You know what I'm talking about? And then they dilate your eyes, and you're just not right for a day or so. And, you know, I, I wish I, I guess I wish I had gone a long time before. My, my senior season at Murray State kind of got messed up because I couldn't see the ball very well and didn't know why. Turns out I needed glasses and contacts, and so, but my prescription hadn't changed that much since then, and so it's, I feel like it's kind of pointless for me to go to the eye doctor, but I go because my wife tells me I should, and she'll be mad at me if I don't, and so, uh, so anyway, I, I guess I'm not real big on the preventative maintenance stuff, but, and I guess you know, I figure wait till something goes wrong, then I'll address it at that point, but, you know, I, I don't know if, if you're like me in any way, but I, that kind of stuff is, I just, I just soon stay at home, don't blow the stuff in my eyes, don't shine the bright lights. Don't dilate my eyes and all that stuff. I'll figure it out if something goes wrong. But my doctor tells me that if you don't go to the eye doctor on a regular basis, now I know he has no conflict of interest here as far as his bottom line is concerned, but he tells me that if you don't go to the eye doctor on a regular basis, you could develop problems that you don't know about, and eventually it affects your eyesight in major, major ways. That's what he tells me. Now, I've never experienced anything like that, but I know people that have. So I take him seriously. I take him at his word. He talks about things like cataracts and glaucoma and stuff that eventually can cause almost like tunnel vision. I've never experienced that, but I know a guy who has. And I've seen his vision deteriorate over the years. And it's not something that I want to experience. And so uh, at the behest of my wife and my eye doctor, I go every year uh, just simply for the checkup. Uh, I really think that, that in the same way, I hope today can be for us just sort of that, that checkup, if you will. Um, maybe, maybe sort of like a spiritual eye exam. I, I really believe when I look at the scripture, it's clear to me that God wants the, the spiritual eyes of his people to be very, very focused and clear. Um, when you look from the, from the beginning to the end of the Bible, but if you look at the first five books of the Bible, you read some things there and you think, what's God saying? What in the world is his point? I mean, he gave some weird kind of laws to the Israelites, some stuff that I don't quite understand. You know, you try to read through the Bible. I've joked about this before. You try to read through the Bible in a year, you get Genesis, you get Exodus. All right, the story's really moving. You hit Leviticus. And then you just, you know, okay, I'll try it again next year, I guess. I don't know, you know, or you skip Leviticus and Numbers. And, it, you know, it, what was God talking about? Really? The main point of those first five books of the Bible was, was here's how you can, Israelite people, God's people, here's how you can keep your spiritual eyes clear and focused. Here's how you're to see God. Here's how you're to see other people. That's really why God gave the law. That's why he instituted the festivals that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. But kind of like me, I guess, the Israelites, they didn't much like going to the eye doctor. And so they let things slip. They ignored God's law. They didn't keep the festivals like they should have. And eventually the diagnosis from God was devastating. Uh, in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 23, the prophet Amos is, is recounting the words of the Lord here. Listen, listen to what God says. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. 
your festivals. I can't stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. God talks about the fact that they had let their vision slip for so long that now he's done with them. It's almost as if the doctor showed up and you finally went to him and he said, well, look, I told you. But I told you this is what's going to happen told you every year you need the checkup. I told you all the time that things could happen and the Israelites just let it slip. And eventually their religion became worthless before the Lord. He says, I hate what you're doing. Just stop. Don't show up before me anymore. He said, stop, stop burning those offerings. Stop those things. They didn't focus on what God said to focus on. They lost what true worship was. Now you and I being human, just like the Israelites were human, you and I are susceptible to the same kind of thing. We don't want to admit it. We don't want the checkup, but we know that we are susceptible to the, to the same thing. Now, we're not under the threat of exile, okay? God is not going to exile us like he did the Israelites as a some sort of punishment. So th- this is not about today losing salvation. Let me tell you this. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ... And, and you, you have truly come to faith in him. You've understood that Jesus is the son of God, that he died for your sins, and that he and he alone, Jesus plus nothing, can bring you salvation. And you've placed your faith in him alone for, for that. You've received that, which has been evidenced by the fruit in your life. Then it's, it's clear in the Bible that nothing can take that away from you. Not a sin that you commit. Paul talks about there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. So today... It's not about if you haven't been worshiping the Lord right, then, then now you've lost your salvation. That's not the point. But today really is about whether or not our worship and our religion are pleasing to God. I still think that matters. I, I still think it matters if what we do as the collective group of believers, if what we do is pleasing to God. I, I think it matters to God. I'll be honest with you, it, it, it breaks my heart. It really saddens me to see Christians, professing Christians, who sort of have a shrug the shoulders kind of attitude toward worship and ministry. Eh, eh. I was talking to another pastor about that the other day. I said, you ever experienced that? Some folks just kind of, eh. He said, no, never. Our church is perfect. I said, you know, doesn't it break your heart to see some Christian? Eh, it just doesn't matter to him anymore. And I really believe it breaks the heart of God. Jesus talked about it in the Gospels. He said to a woman, he said, God is seeking true worshipers, those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And I want you and I want me to be counted among those true worshipers. We're in a series that we're calling Celebrate. And what we're looking at are the festivals in the Old Testament. So if you're just joining us, let me kind of catch you up real quick. We're leading up to on November 6th, we're having a big celebration Sunday here for our 170th anniversary as a church. And leading up to that, I I started thinking about and wondering, well, you know, where's the celebration in the Bible? Well, the celebration, of course, is in the Old Testament and all those different feasts. And so let's, let's talk about those things. Let's look at what we can learn from these ancient feasts. And what was God actually calling them to celebrate? And what then can we apply today? And so today we're going to look at one of the three annual feasts that they had. There were three that, that everybody was supposed to show up at, and this was one of them. Catch up just a little bit. Seven weeks after the festival that was known as the Festival of First Fruits, which we looked at last week. If you want a little bit more about it, it's on the podcast on the website. You can check that out. Festival of the First Fruits was at the beginning of the barley harvest, and they were to show up before the Lord, and they would present their first fruit, the first and best, 
of, of what they had to offer. They gave it to God. And so the one that we'll look at today is called the Festival of Weeks, and it was seven weeks completed uh, after the Festival of the First Fruits. So this one celebrated the wheat harvest, not the barley, but the wheat harvest. And it was called the Festival of Weeks because it was dependent, its date was dependent, on counting a certain number of weeks from the Festival of the First Fruits until this one. Now, it became known as the, the Feast of Pentecost. Now, you may not know anything about the Old Testament, but maybe you know a little bit about the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, there was something big that happened at Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit came and so on and so forth. The, the Greek word for 50 is Pentecost. This festival was 50 days after the one before it. God's instructions come really in two different uh, spots in the Old Testament. If you want to get your place kind of marked in each, we're going to look at today Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy chapter 16. Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy chapter 16. Now go ahead and get there if you can. If you got your Bible, if you got a tablet, smartphone, whatever you got with you. Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy chapter 16. Here are the instructions for the festival known as the festival or the feast of weeks. In Leviticus 23, look uh, beginning in verse 15, we'll read through verse 22. You are to count seven complete weeks, starting from the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the presentation offering. That's the feast of the first fruits. You are to count 50 days until the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then present an offering of new grain, that would be wheat, to the Lord. Bring two loaves of bread from your settlements as a presentation offering, each of them made from four quarts of fine flour baked with yeast as first fruits to the Lord. You are to present with the bread seven unblemished male lambs, a year old, one young bull, and two rams. They will be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offerings and drink offerings, a fire offering of pleasing aroma to the Lord. You are also to prepare one male goat as a sin offering and two male lambs, a year old, as a fellowship sacrifice. The priest will wave the lambs with the bread of the first fruits as a presentation offering before the Lord. The bread and the two lambs will be holy to the Lord for the priest. On that same day, you are to make a proclamation and hold a sacred assembly. You are not to do any daily work. This is to be a permanent statute wherever you live throughout your generations. When you reap the harvest of your land, you are not to reap all the way to the edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreign resident. I am the Lord your God. Then look at the, the other set of instructions for this feast over in Deuteronomy chapter 16 beginning in verse 9. Deuteronomy 16, 9 through 12. You are to count seven weeks, counting the weeks from the time the sickle is first put to the, uh, to the standing grain. You are to celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord your God with a free will offering that you give in proportion to how the Lord has blessed you. Rejoice before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to have his name dwell. You, your son and daughter, your male and female slave, the Levite within your gates, as well as the foreign resident, the fatherless and the widow among you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Carefully follow these statutes. What we have here, I read all that to kind of give you a full picture of here's what God said for them to do. What we have here is a feast that will happen in the future. God was giving instructions where they were in the wilderness leading up to where they would be in the promised land. They had left the slavery of Egypt. They'd been there for 400 years. The, the nation's finally delivered from that. They're walking through the wilderness to the promised land. And God says, here's some instructions for to get there. All of it, all these feasts, uh, this particular feast, all the instructions for this feast were to happen one day, someday. And it was to involve, as we know, all the males in Israel. They were all representing their household to appear before the Lord 
And this was a feast that was going to interrupt their activities and their responsibilities and require them to travel to Jerusalem. It's known as a pilgrimage feast. So they are to appear before the Lord. So wherever they were, they were to stop and go to Jerusalem. Now in many ways, in some ways I guess, you can see how this feast would have eventually become something that that maybe they stopped doing. Maybe they did out of obligation. And here's God telling them that, listen, once the harvest begins, I want you to stop that very first day. I want you to stop and I want you to, to right when the work is, is, is beginning, stop all your responsibilities as they get started. And I want you to travel to Jerusalem and present an offering to the Lord. I mean, you can almost see the people kind of rolling their eyes a little bit, sighing very loudly, muttering to themselves, thinking, you know what, I can do this at home. I mean, I can, I can take care of this religious obligation at home on my own time. Why in the world did God set these things up in the first place? But we got to go. And so they trudge along to Jerusalem. They take an offering they hope they can present quickly and then go home as quickly as they can, get back to the work on their farms. And for many, I'm sure it was just kind of like me going to the eye doctor. Going because my wife said I should. Going because, well, I guess the doctor thinks I I need to. It's an obligation. But unfortunately for the Israelites, what they couldn't see is they didn't give their, their, their hearts to this particular festival. What they couldn't see was the problem that was developing within them. What they couldn't see was the long-term detriment of letting these festivals slip and becoming meaningless or obligatory. And what they couldn't see was the effect that it would one day have on their children and grandchildren because they didn't take God seriously. The problem that they had was the problem that can develop for us if we don't go to the eye doctor. Tunnel vision. I've, I've been told that glaucoma can eventually lead to the idea of tunnel vision where your periphery is gone. Spiritually, we have the same inclination. They had a problem that we often share, that spiritual tunnel vision. Here's what I mean. Maybe you're like me and you get so focused sometimes on your own life, your own responsibilities, your own quest to accomplish something, your own family obligations and activities that you don't see in your field of vision anymore that God is necessary and that true worship is something we should do. Our field of vision is tunnel vision, only including us. Now, it's an easy trap, I'll be honest with you, really easy trap, because there are responsibilities. You do have a lot of things that your focus requires. You do have obligations at work, at school, at home, on your team, wherever. And worship can easily get pushed to the back burner. It's kind of a slow fade, just like the Israelites, just like physical eye problems. Maybe you haven't noticed it. Maybe you're still attending church, doing religious activities, but but what used to stir your soul doesn't stir it anymore. And so today I hope to be a spiritual eye exam. Maybe God is diagnosing some of us with tunnel vision. That we have crowded him out of our field of vision. All we can see is us. Now his solution for it is very simple. Our problem is that we've got tunnel vision. His solution is to worship, to truly worship him. He called the Israelites just when they were getting started with the harvest, just when they needed to be real busy and responsible, God called them to stop and to worship. And it was to be a lasting festival, meaning that year after year after year after year, they were to stop and reprioritize and say, you know what, we got a lot to do, but we're going to stop, we're going to worship the Lord. There are two ways that God called them to focus their eyes when it came to this, and we see this both in Deuteronomy 16 and in Leviticus chapter 23. The first part was for them in worship to focus their eyes up, to focus up, which included their celebration of God. Look back in Deuteronomy chapter 16. 
He says, you are to count seven weeks, counting the weeks, time the sickle is first put to the standing grain. And then what? You are to celebrate the festival of weeks. He uses the word celebrate. There was something that they were to have that was exciting about being there. It wasn't going to be a boring atmosphere where they just sort of trudge along and they sort of pay their respective dues to the Lord and so on. It wasn't irreverent, but it wasn't boring either. They were to celebrate together what God had done for them. Now listen, I'm going to be honest with you. Other than than somebody walking away from our church and saying they were unbiblical and heretical, I really believe the worst thing that can be said about our church was that it was boring. I've heard it said it's a sin to bore kids in church. You know why? Why would they want to be there? Why would they want to go? I'm not saying we are boring. I'm saying we better be careful that we aren't boring. God said, celebrate before me. There ought to be something exciting when we walk in. You know when I have to quiet you all down just a little bit? You know how much that bothers me? None. It doesn't bother me at all. You know why? Because maybe, just maybe, you're excited to see one another. Maybe, just maybe, you sort of got excited about being together at the church. It doesn't bother me in, in the least. You know, when the kids come down and we talk about cupcakes and cookies and so on, you know why partly I do that? Because I want them to, to look forward to being at church. I want them to have some way that they say, you know what, that guy who stands down there and I'm not so sure about him, you know what, he sits down there and talks to us. He's kind of excited. We kind of like that. Shame on us if we make church boring. Honestly. Not irreverent. That's not what I'm talking about. But you know what? There's an excitement. God celebrate this feast. Our corporate worship is not an obligation. It's a privilege. And it ought to be participative. And it ought to be celebrative and exciting. It's not something we manufacture just because the music or sermon gets us fired up. It's something we bring with us just because we've been excited about the Lord all week long. And we get to gather with our brothers and sisters to celebrate God together. Deuteronomy 16 goes on, and, and God, when he called them to worship, he also called them, as we looked at last week, to give. He says, you are to celebrate the festival of weeks to the Lord with a free will offering. It was just something that was given. Do you know why we put the offering where we put it? Partly because that's the way we've always done it, okay? And I'm going to tell you what, there are certain things I know I can mess with you real bad. If we did the offering at a different time, some of you would freak out. Some of you would call for my resignation. What are you doing? I didn't have my check ready. It wasn't in the envelope yet. Now, a lot of you give in Sunday school, so you've already taken care of this. No big deal to you. But you know why we put the offering right in the middle of the service? Because it's an act of worship. It's part of our worship service. It's not a tag on somewhere. It's not an obligation. It's a privilege. We put it right in the middle because it's just an act of worship. We sing as an act of worship. We give as an act of worship. We listen to the sermon as an act of worship. We respond at the end. It's all an act of worship. It's a declaration. My giving, as God said, you give a free will offering. It's, it's a declaration that all I have comes from God. All I have belongs to God. And all I have is to God. It's a statement to my heart that my heart's not going to follow my stuff and my money. My heart will follow the Lord. And it's a way that I fight against tunnel vision, only focusing on me and my stuff. He goes on to talk about, look at verse 11, rejoice before the Lord. He talks about that in worship there should be rejoicing. And this sort of goes along with celebration. The truth is we're not just singing songs, we're praising our Savior. We didn't, we didn't just shake hands earlier. We're rejoicing that we have a family in Jesus Christ. We're not just going to enjoy a meal together later on, as good as that's going to be. We're going to rejoice that we get to eat together and, and enjoy one another's company. 
carries a connotation of being happy before the Lord. Sometimes life can be depressing. There's an opportunity each week for us to pause and join together and rejoice and celebrate the happiness that we have in the Lord. He says, rejoice before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to have his name dwell. Worship also involves the idea of submission. You realize that worship is not about our preferences and what we like. Now, this is tough. Let me use an example. When I first came here, I wore a suit and tie every week. Some of you don't know that. You just thought I showed up in sort of the dress pants and dress shirt and that was it. Because you, you never saw that, that side of me, okay? I, I, I'm going to threaten to bring it back out at some point. Anyway, I used to wear a suit and tie every week. And I had, you know, I had four suits. I just rotate them. One different each week. And I remember one sermon that I preached... <clears throat> And I, I, in the sermon, part of the illustration that I was using, I took off my, my jacket. And I was a little bit nervous about doing it, I'll be honest with you, because I wasn't sure how folks would respond to that. You know, I just didn't know. And I'll never forget my, my good friend, and, and I had the privilege of, of preaching his funeral, Dr. Charles Chaney. He came up to me afterward, and he said, we won't listen any less if you're not wearing that jacket. <laughs> I said, okay. He said, we'll still pay attention. Well, a couple years later, I'm still wearing a suit and tie. And my good friend, Eddie Clyde Hale, comes up to me. And he says, you got to lose a tie. <laughs> Nobody else wearing a tie. I mean, look around this morning. There may be, I don't know, I haven't seen everybody. But I'm not sure anybody's wearing a tie. He said, you got to lose a tie. I said, Eddie Clyde, I I said, I don't want to make anybody mad. I said, I don't care. I really don't. I wear the suit and tie. It doesn't matter to me, you know, whatever. He said, you got to lose a tie. So next Sunday, I showed up without a tie. I see him in the back. He said, now you got to lose a jacket. I still kept the jacket on. <laughs> He's got to lose a jacket. <clears throat> I said, I said, you're killing me here. So I, I said, okay, all right. So I, I lost a jacket. Well, that next Christmas, I wore a tie because my son Hank decided he was going to wear a tie to church that morning. I said, all right, I'll wear a tie since you want to wear a tie. On the way out the door, somebody walks up to me and says, boy, I sure like seeing that tie back. (laughs) I said, it won't be there next week. And and, and neither were they. They didn't come back. I I don't know what happened. You know, we get so caught up, don't we? And what we prefer, how we prefer to look, how we want the preacher to look. He's got to be in a suit and tie. We have to sing these songs. We have to have the building look this way, whatever it may be. God said, you show up, you celebrate, you rejoice before me in the place where I choose, in the manner that I choose. You realize that worship this morning, what we do is not about what we prefer and what we feel comfortable with. Well, I feel comfortable there. I hope you do. But listen, I hope you feel uncomfortable to the point where you'll stand and you'll worship the Lord. And even if God says you lift your hands to me and you shout and you praise the Lord, you'll be willing to do it because that's on His terms. Submission is part of worship. Thanksgiving, He goes on. He says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. He says, look back just a little bit. Don't forget where you've come from. Don't forget that when you were slaves, there was no harvest to give. Don't forget that when you were slaves, there was no freedom to celebrate. Don't forget that when you were slaves, there was no chance to gather before the Lord. Don't forget that when you were slaves, there were no festivals to celebrate. Don't forget that when you were slaves, there were no days of Sabbath to rest. The festival of 
weeks would come when they had settled in the promised land where they would have a harvest, where they would be free, where they would be able to gather for worship, where they would have Sabbath rest. And they were to remember, remember you were slaves in Egypt, verse 12 in Deuteronomy 16 says, remember you were slaves in Egypt. Don't forget what God did to get you out of there. Now we might not have experienced physical slavery, but what Jesus has set us free from is far worse. To be enslaved to sin and death is far worse than to be physically enslaved because physical enslavement will end one day, either by freedom or by death. But sin and death, if it's got a hold of you, if you've never been delivered by Jesus Christ, you'll pay for that for all eternity. When we think of our history, when you think of your past or what could have been your future, you've got a lot to be thankful for. Don't forget what Jesus has delivered you from. He says in verse 12, carefully follow these statutes. Part of worship includes obedience. God expects that we will not forget to obey His Word. Obedience still matters. We like to think that it doesn't. We like to think that because God's so loving, it doesn't matter what we do. What we do matters to God. He expects our obedience, not just on the outside, but on the inside in our hearts. Leviticus 23 highlights the fact that worship includes sacrifice. And we talked a little bit about this last week, the idea of giving to the Lord and the sacrifices that they made. But when you think of this in terms of they had to make a pilgrimage, they had to get up, stop what they were doing, get ready, take a bunch of stuff with them and travel somewhere. You understand that the sacrifice they made wasn't just in what they gave, but it was also in their time and their effort. A gathering with God's people is always going to be a sacrifice of time and effort. You made it this morning. You made a sacrifice of time and a sacrifice of effort to be here. And I really think that's part of the point. That's part of worship. The fact that you said, you know what? It's easier to stay at home, easier to stay in bed, easier to do anything else this morning, but get up, get myself, and if you got kids, try to find where they are, put some clothes on them, drag them to church, slick their hands on the way in, and shove them in the door. It's easier to do anything else but that. But just like the giving of money, taking the time and making the effort to gather with the church on a regular basis is a statement to your schedule. It's a statement to your priorities, to your hobbies, to your interests, to your television, to your bed, to your family, to your neighbors, and to your heart that gathering for corporate worship matters. God said we should, and so that's what we do because I need to be there. And you know what? We need you to be here. We benefit from you being here. God calls us to worship by focusing up. But there's an overlooked part of worship as well. And it's highlighted in both these passages, Deuteronomy 16 and Leviticus 23. And it's the idea of focusing out. The byproduct of true worship, of focusing up, is to focus out. It's as if in pairing these things together that God says true worship isn't complete unless it affects how you view and treat those around you. God calls us in worship to focus and to focus out. And the goal here on focusing out is to have compassion for others, to meet their physical needs, as Leviticus 23 tells us. Look there in verse 22. Don't miss what he says here. When you reap the harvest of your land, you are not to reap all the way to the edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest, the stuff that's kind of left over. Leave them for the poor and the foreign resident. I am the Lord your God, he says. There's a reminder to leave something for the poor and for the foreigner among them. 
They were to collect most, but not all, not all the way to the edge. Leave something for those who don't have anything. Part of their worship, what flowed right out of their, their focusing up and thanking the Lord for the harvest, was to leave some for those who didn't have anything. They weren't to have tunnel vision even on their religious activities, even on their praise of the Lord. That wasn't to be the only thing present in their worship. Their religious field of vision was to include those that God had surrounded them with, particularly those who were poor and those who had nowhere to go. They were to meet physical needs. In Deuteronomy 16, I I love this part. Deuteronomy 16, verse 11, Rejoice before the Lord your God in the place where He chooses to have His name dwell. You, your son and daughter, your male and female slave, the Levite within your gate, as well as the foreign resident, the fatherless and the widow among you. Part of focusing out is to break down any social barrier that might be there for someone to know that they can come to the Lord just like you can. Worship, as God said, was open and is open to everybody, regardless of social status. If we went around the room today and we compared bank accounts, we would have some way up here. And we'd have others way down here. We have a lot sort of in the middle. But do you know where we all are this morning? All right here together. How many other places does that happen? God has designed the church to be one where no matter how much money you have or don't have, no matter your background, what it is, good, bad, or otherwise, no matter where you've come from, no matter what the color of your skin, that when you gather with the the people of God, that we all stand on equal footing before the cross of Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget it. Don't ever believe it's anything different. Don't ever believe that just because you have or don't have something, that just because you are or you aren't something, just because you grew up somewhere or you didn't grow up somewhere, just because you're one color or another, that you have anything to throw before the Lord that is any more than anybody else. None of us do. None of us. Every one of us stands on equal footing before the Lord, all in such desperate need of the grace of Jesus Christ that we can't even fathom how desperately we need it. In worship, at their gathering, God said, everybody's welcome. And this morning, I want you to know that so far as I can help it, Elm Grove is going to be a place where everybody is welcome to gather and worship the Lord. doesn't matter who you are and who you aren't. It was in meeting physical needs and breaking down these social barriers that they were, the people of God were then in position to meet the true needs that were there. And those, of course, were the spiritual needs. This festival of weeks carried this symbolism all the way up until the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, Pentecost took on a brand new meaning. And the festival would be no longer celebrated by Christians because they had a new thing to celebrate. And that was in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell, to live in, and to empower, to help them live out the life of Jesus Christ. It was at that moment when the Holy Spirit descended on them in that upper room that their focus was upward but immediately turned outward. They experienced God in a brand new, personal, and powerful way like never before. And what happened at Pentecost in the New Testament was that they were then turned outward to go reach the world for Jesus Christ. Immediately what happened was that the disciples were given the ability to speak languages they hadn't studied. To speak intelligible languages that people understood. It would be like I would suddenly be given the ability to speak German. Never studied German. I know a couple words in German. They're probably not right. It would be suddenly as if the Holy Spirit enabled me when a German person who was not a believer walked in and immediately we could carry on a conversation. That's what happened in the book of Acts. 
ordinary people heard in their language the word of God. The people had been worshiping in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 1. It says they were together in prayer. They're worshiping the Lord. And then the Holy Spirit comes. They focused up. And the Holy Spirit then pushed them to focus out. Two questions for you for application this week. And I really, I just want you to think about it. I'd love to know. I get to hear from you from, from time to time. Some of you will email me and let, let, me, let, let me know, hey, here's, here's what God has done in my life this week. I was reading that scripture again or whatever. I, I always appreciate that. Enjoy reading those stories. Let me give you two questions. They're not going to be on your outline. Just two questions as you close. This week, first question, how will I celebrate God? And I mean that very specifically. How is it that you will celebrate God? How will you worship him this week? Maybe you need to, to honestly say, you know what? My tunnel vision only focuses on me. And I show up at church, but I ain't worried about it. My field of vision no longer includes truly worshiping God. And this week I will celebrate him through something very specific. Maybe it's a song. Maybe it's through giving. Maybe it's through doing this or that or whatever. I wonder, would you be honest and say, you know what? My expression of worship, my expression of faith has just sort of become boring, obligatory, not at all reflective of the greatness of Jesus Christ. And this week I will celebrate who I am in Jesus Christ. How will you celebrate God this week? And then secondly, how will you have compassion for others this week? We talked Wednesday night in our Bible study in here. And somebody made the point, and it was, a, it was sort of a, a sad point that we all said, yeah, we all do that. You ever have somebody come to you and they pour out their heart and they tell you their needs and you say, hey, I'll pray for you. You know what that is? That's just Christian niceness. Say, hey, look, I really don't want to get involved, but I'll pray for you. Okay? And then the next time that you see them, when you're walking in the door of church, you say a quick prayer for them. Hey, I've been praying for you. How's that going? Because you forgot all week long. Listen, I want you to be in prayer for other people, but I want you to consider, and I want me to consider how specifically will I show and will I have compassion for others when it comes to their physical needs, when it comes to social barriers, and ultimately when it comes to their spiritual status before the Lord, how will I specifically meet those needs? How will I specifically break down those barriers? How will I specifically pray that God will use me in order to reach them for Jesus Christ? Because until we get to that point, we don't have compassion for others. We're just trying to be nice. Worship, true worship, the eye exam this morning, means that our field of vision now focuses up and focuses out. That we truly celebrate the Lord and we truly have compassion for others. How will you do those things this week? Let's pray together. As always, at the end of the service, I just want you to be mindful of what God might have spoken to you this morning. I don't make a demand that you get up out of your seat and you walk down here and you talk to me about it. But listen, if, if that's what God is telling you to do, then come on. If you're interested this morning in learning more about this Jesus that I've talked about, His death and His resurrection, and I, I, I will be right here. I'll stay as long as needed. And we'll talk about it. If you're interested in knowing what baptism means or how to join the church, certainly be happy to talk with you about those things. 
whatever it is that God is dealing with you this morning, please don't leave without having talked to Him about those things. Is there a commitment you need to make? Is there a sin to confess? Is there a relationship to be made right this morning? How is it that the Lord is calling you to celebrate Him and to have compassion for others? Lord Jesus, this morning, we pray that You would stir us again, stir our hearts to worship, to focus up and celebrate You not manufactured, but from a heart of gratitude, knowing who we would have been apart from Jesus Christ. And Lord, in our worship, may we not neglect the byproduct of focusing out, of having compassion on others. Lord, this week I pray you'd put in our path people whose physical needs we we need to meet. Help us to be people who will break down any barrier to get people to you and whose spiritual needs... And we'll seek to meet personally. Lord, spur us on to true worship. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are and what you've done in exchanging your life for ours. We give you praise this morning. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Would you stand again?